0: When you judge an emotion, it becomes stickier and it becomes more indicative of how you view yourself in the world that day. Whereas if you can treat emotions more like a weather pattern that come and go, you can feel them, but you don't have to attach to them. And that act of non-attachment is really important because a lot of people, especially if you're a big feeler, feel all kinds of emotions just within the span of a given day. If we can just let these emotions move through us and be flexible enough to try to make space to hold everything that comes up, we have the best chance of being grounded and centered throughout all kinds of different weather. everybody. Welcome to or back to the Growth Equation podcast. I'm your host, Brad Stolberg. Steve, my usual partner in crime, is out today. But to fill in his big shoes, we've got Chris Douglas, who is the COO of the Growth Equation, really keeps the ship sailing in the right direction and is uh, quite a good talker too. So I think y'all are in for a treat today. Before we get into the show, a quick reminder of it the best way to support the growth equation and the podcast is to buy our most recent books, mine the practice of groundedness, Steve's Do Hard Things, and to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. And when you sign up for Patreon, you get all sorts of neat stuff, including Access to a regular book club where we have live Zoom discussions on books, often including the authors who wrote them. Neat PDF ebooks, training guides to the topics that we coach towards, excellence, resilience, signed copies of our new books, first edition signed copies of our new books. We've got one coming out very soon. Y'all will be hearing more about that. So now's a pretty good time to sign up for Patreon. So head on over to www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. With that, let's hop in. Chris, great to be uh, talking to you. Well, record is hit this time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Always great to be on the podcast. Um, How are you doing, Brad?
0: Things are good. Things are good. Um, Yeah. What are we talking about today?
1: Well, you know, you recently posted something on Instagram um, on seven mindset shifts that will, quote unquote, change your life. And, you know, I... consume all this content, read everything that you guys write. And I'm always just fascinated with sort of the process on how you come up with, with either even just narrowing it down to seven. Um, So I thought it might be interesting to just sort of unpack sort of your thinking and sort of interview you on how you sort of develop these ideas that, that then you share with all of us.
0: All right. That sounds good. Uh, I'm glad that someone out there is reading my Instagram. (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah yeah i mean i think your instagram is great and and i i know you're you're being you're being modest but uh resonates with a lot of people and and that's why i thought it'd be interesting to just kind of do a deep dive into one particular post where where you know you, you give it it's instagram so you can't really get too deep into it so i figured well let's get let's get into it and so the first mindset shift that you say um you know what will change your life is, is don't worry about being the best, but worry about being the best at getting better. Now, where, where did this idea come from? And, and, and why, why do you believe that that's the first, you know, one of seven?
0: All right. So before we get into each mindset shift, the, I want to say something about just how I use Instagram in general, because I think it will help um, ground the conversation. So I see Instagram is threefold. The first reason that I use Instagram is it is a chance to test ideas and to see what people find value in, what resonates, uh, what doesn't resonate with people. The second reason I use Instagram is really is like a top of a funnel to try to draw people into the things that I think and write about more deeply. So my hope is that if somebody enjoys my Instagram content, they're more likely to read one of the books or to listen to the Growth Equation podcast or sign up for the newsletter. So I really see Instagram as like surface level content that then hopefully hooks people, gets them deeper into where we can unpack the nuance like we're going to do today. And then the third reason that I use Instagram is uh, I find that, you know, sometimes I'll get messages from people that are like, I saw this post and like it really gave words to something that I felt or that I experienced or that I thought was going on, but I didn't yet have a way to talk about it with myself or with other people. And now that I have a way to talk about it, I can wrestle with it. I can make it real. I can explain it. I feel like I understand myself or even I understand the world a little bit better. And um, I find that that happens a lot more on Instagram than Twitter, to be honest. So one of the things that I've been really wrong about is for the longest time, I was staunchly against Instagram for many very valid reasons uh, that I'm still not thrilled about as it relates to body image, uh, particularly in developing children's brains and as they craft their sense of self-confidence, the filters, the one-upsmanship. What I didn't realize at the time is that you can use Instagram just to write. And unlike Twitter, it doesn't have a text limit um the verification is actually like meaningful it works people don't impersonate me on instagram like they do on twitter um so i just use it to write um and and for those three reasons so the whole like seven mindsets that'll change your life um on the one hand that sounds very kind of marketing and cliché and that's intentional i want people to click and to scroll through for sure um I heard from another author, Oliver Berkman, some years ago, we were talking about titling books and he gave me some advice that clearly stuck with me, which is as long as what's on the inside is good, call the book whatever you want. And I think that particularly for a social media thread, something with a lot of text, so long as what's on the inside is good, call it whatever you want. Now, the more generous view is as we talk through these mindsets, like I actually think that if you adopt them and you practice them; they actually can change your life for the better. I mean, they certainly changed my life and many uh, people that I know's lives for the better. So it's a big swing, but there's there's at least a kernel of truth to that.
1: Yeah, and it's almost like you have to take a big swing just to get people to. Uh, I mean, it's just the world we live in. I mean, you you and Steve talk about this a lot. That's like you know you you have to be somewhat provocative to get people's attention, and if you're at least doing it with some sort of altruistic motive, it's better than just a you know, I don't know, get people in some sort of doom spiral or something.
0: And we're transparent. I mean, what we're trying to sell is a $25 book or a Audible or a Libro credit, right? Like mm-hmm. that's it. Um, but we are trying to sell that, but we think that it's a really good value and we stand by it and we're confident and we're not making any crazy claims based on um, based on those books. You know, you're not going to live forever if you read our book, but hopefully you'll live a little bit better. So it gives gives me the confidence to take some more of those big swings. All right. So now that that's out of the way, the, the first mindset shift, which is all about releasing from the need to be the best and focusing on being the best at getting better. This really originated during work on your favorite of the books, at least I think, The Passion Paradox. Yeah. And that book explored the difference between what researchers call harmonious passion in obsessive passion, something that we've talked about on the show in the past. In brief, harmonious passion is when you love the pursuit, the activity. Obsessive passion is when you love the external validation that the activity brings. And I think that that quote is really a pithy way of saying, like, fall in love with the pursuit, fall in love with improvement, not with the result. Because if you fall in love with the results, well, that's often outside of your control. And that will become a really tenuous emotional roller coaster. If you try to be the best and you're hell bent on being the best and you don't become the best because, uh, you know, Rafael Nadal shows up and beats you or <laughs> LeBron James Jr. comes into the league the day after you, well, then you failed your goal and you're not going to be too happy about that. I think equally as dangerous as if you do become the best, because then it's like, so what? Like, now what do I do? A lot of people have that experience. Uh, It always comes to mind Ray Allen after he won his NBA championship saying that the morning he woke up after winning was one of the worst, most confusing, disorienting mornings of his life because he was the best, In now what? So I think that when we put too much emphasis on that outcome and not enough on the best at being better, which is ongoing, only you can really succeed or fail at that. And you get to define what better means. Um, it becomes a lot more anti-fragile. So let me ask you
1: a question about that. So in terms of, so let's say that you are, um, sort of worrying about being the best. Are there some tips or, or strategies where you can sort of recalibrate that for yourself and be like, okay, I'm going to I'm becoming disharmonious, I'm becoming obsessive. How do I pull myself back? How do I get some perspective?
0: The first thing I'd say is define what the best at being better looks like for you. And better is open to interpretation. For some people, better is, I want to have more self-awareness as a leader, or I want to run 30 seconds per mile faster, or I want to deadlift 10 more pounds For other people or the same person at a different point in their life, better might be, I want to be kinder and wiser, or I want to be more equanimous in challenging situations. So better is a fluid definition. I think it's important to define it. And then in terms of releasing from this pressure to be the best, um, it's just about continuously coming back to the work itself, right? We talk about the 48-hour rule often, which says that win or loss, good outcome or bad outcome give yourself 48 hours to really feel what you're feeling. If you've won to celebrate, if you've lost to grieve, but then get back to actually doing the thing itself. So shift from being the best to, all right, what do I have to do to get better? And people are very literal, my wife included. So, you know, 48 hours is arbitrary for lesser contingencies. It can be 24 hours and for bigger things, it could be two weeks. It could be a month. But the point is, don't let yourself stew in that achievement of bastard failure. Get back to the work itself.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, the second mindset shift is consistency over intensity. and I love this one because you know, there's all these graphs that you put out, you know which which are which are really great that that, that really highlight this for me. But the idea of just like if you just keep showing up over time, steady wins the race kind of thing. So, I mean, so I, I'd love to hear from you. Um, cause this is something, I mean, we put this on hats. We've, we really believe that this is a, a core mantra to, for the growth equation and, 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 and why, why do you think it's, it's, I mean, it, it seems so, um, I don't want to say seems so basic, but it's also really profound at the same time. So I'm curious, you know, where, where did this come from and, and, and why do you think it's so powerful? This, this, this mindset?
0: Well, I think the biggest trap is to get really excited about something, listen to an inspiring podcast, perhaps this one, (laughs) and like bury yourself, do way too much too soon, and then burn out because you either sustain a physical or emotional injury. And what we see on the internet are stories of crazy intensity. But what we don't see on the internet is the ensuing burnout that follows. Or we hear about the one egg that didn't break when it hit the wall but we don't hear about the thousand eggs that cracked and shattered all over. So I think that there's this romanticism about the all-nighter, about the workout where you go until you give yourself rhabdo or you vomit, that is just detached from what the evidence shows about sustainable excellence. And what the evidence shows is that the most important thing that you can do is string together very long periods of high enough quality work, And I say high enough quality because if you go for the highest quality, you're on that razor's edge. And while you can maybe ride that razor's edge for a couple weeks, if you try to do that over years, eventually you're going to cross the line. You're going to cross the line perhaps too many times and you're going to burn out. The result is just not going to be great. So um, it's this kind of paradox where every day, if you're a gunner, might feel like you're having to show some restraint But chronically, over the course of a month, a year, a decade, it feels really, really challenging. Mm -hmm. And um, someone who spoke about this so eloquently on this podcast, forgot if it was earlier this year, it was either earlier this year or it might have been late last year, was Coach Stuart McMillan from Altus who has coached over 35 Olympic medalists, hundreds of Olympians, and over hundred world champion medalists. So he is widely known as one of, if not the best living coaches in sprint and power sports. And we started getting into the Altus, which is his training group, their methodology for structuring the training for these truly world-class, in some cases, the best in the world athletes. And what Stu said is that they just try to be a 7 or an 8 out of 10, but they try to be a 7 or an 8 out of 10 on everything always. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how every athlete is this complex system of their physical, their psychological, their social, their emotional. And then within each of those things, their physical is their musculoskeletal system, their cardiovascular health, their emotional Might be their mental health and how hitched on they are to being the best versus getting better. Their social health might be their relationship with their coach, their training partners, their family, if they have kids. So it's impossible to be a 10 on any of those things without sacrificing somewhere else. It's impossible, even more so, to be a 10 on all of those things. So Stu is like, if we can just be an eight or a seven, even out of 10 across the board, but do that for years, do that for decades. Then the entirety of the system will be a ten, and will be a world champion or an Olympic medalist. So yeah. that was really reassuring and validating to hear it from someone that has more skin in the game than anyone.
1: You know, we we were we were actually talking about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, the idea that if you're really trying to be ten out of ten on everything, ten out of ten is perfection, which seems high bar, really hard to to even achieve, let alone sustain over a long term. But if you can manage seven or eight out of ten consistently.
0: I mean, that's excellence, right? Exactly. And it's really hard to do. And sometimes that even means a six or a five out of 10. But um, just lowering the bar a little bit day to day allows you to long term have an extremely high bar. So in athletics, we talk about the difference between crushing a workout and crushing a training block. And crushing a training block very rarely looks like I crushed every workout. (laughs) Because if you did that, you'd crush yourself. It looks like I showed up and I executed every workout. And at times, I actually had to force myself into a stance of restraint. But that allowed me to come back the next day and the next day and the next day. And this is true in relationships. This is true in creative work. It's true in making uh, music. You talk to great recording artists, just like studio time. Um, so yeah, it really is super fundamental. It also sounds good and looks cool on a hat. So there's that benefit. (laughs) Um, but I think so many people just think like intensity, intensity, intensity and not consistency. Um, I see this all the time in friends and family members that sometimes struggle with relationships. Like they just expect everything to be so intense always. And, um, that flame can only burn for so long before like the laws of physics, like the heat dissipates, yeah. Like, can you keep showing up and being consistent? And, um, over time that gives you the best chance at growth in whatever it is you're doing.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think there's also like a nugget in there of just being realistic, right? Like, you know, as using the relationship example, yeah, the flame can't burn bright, um, you know, for 50 years, it ha- has to be something deeper than that, that's that's that builds over time, that you develop this relationship, you develop this camaraderie, you know, your partner with your partner or whatever, your dog. I mean, it doesn't matter what the relationship, but but yeah, it's like to think that it's just going to, you can just achieve and maintain intensity. It just seems really, really hard, if not impossible.
0: Yeah. So that's a huge mindset shift It's just getting away from that um, contrived pressure on oneself to be intense or be a 10 all the time and instead focus on being a 10 over decades, which means being a seven or eight every day.
1: Right, right. Um, okay, so so the next mindset shift, and I love this because, I mean, I've seen this in my life just so many times, is the people around you shape you. And it reminds me of Erica Badu has a song where she says, you know, pick your friends like you pick your fruit, um, which is which is a great line that she says, or you know, in the in the song, she says that's what her father always told her, and and I totally believe that. I mean, the, the people around you have such an important role in helping you either stay grounded, you know, et cetera. Um, why why do you think this is such an important shift to, to consciously be thinking about the people that that you surround yourself with?
0: Well, the research here is pretty unequivocal, and that is that. When you ask people, especially those that live in Western societies, to define themselves, they spend a whole lot of time talking about what is inside of their skin and skull. They don't spend a lot of time talking about their environment. Yet our environments impact us a ton and really shape who we are. They shape our identities, they shape our beliefs and our behaviors, our sense of self. So I think that the most important part of one's environment is the other living, breathing creatures around you. And while animals are important, I think that humans perhaps are more important in, in shaping one's identity. Um, and, uh, and that is why the people that you surround yourself are just like absolutely critical, right? The research shows that our emotions are contagious our motivations are contagious. So you put yourself around people that are internally driven and you're more likely to be internally driven. You put yourself around people that are super externally driven. You're more likely to be externally driven. You surround yourself with cheaters. You're more likely to cheat. You surround yourself with ethical people. You're more likely to be ethical. Um, so we think that we have to do all this like inner self-work to become a certain way. But oftentimes, it's just about picking the people around you and putting yourself in situations with people that you admire and that you want to grow to be like or that you think that you could grow together with. Uh, This isn't always possible. Sometimes there are family members or people in your neighborhood or in the workplace that you don't get to choose. But when you can choose, I think it's important to make this choice really intentionally and, and thoughtfully.
1: Yeah, and this reminds me of uh, Annie Murphy-Paul's book, The Extended Mind, where she's talking about how just the importance of this environment, whether for learning, um, you know, there was one example in that book where all these kids who had, like, ADHD went outside and sort of the act of being outside together, like, decreased the, the severe, even, like, the clinical diagnosis of, of ADHD and just the importance of, of being in groups in, in, in particular
0: Yeah, that's right. I'm curious. You said that this is one that you've really seen play out. Um, Can you say more? Like, was it in a negative direction or a positive direction or both at times?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, um, you know, not to get like super personal, but um, I was, I'm happily married now, but I was unhappily married before and had a divorce and um, found just had a moment where I realized that a lot of my, my friends, um, weren't really doing me any favors. I was drinking too much. I was, you know, partying or whatever. And, and I just didn't want that to, I I saw where that road was going and I pretty much like overnight, just like shed a bunch of people out of my life that weren't adding any value. I, I mean, some of them reached out and asked me what was going on. Most, most of them just kept moving on with their lives without me, no problem. Um, and then I uh, started finding my fitness again and joined this triathlon club in the Bay Area and like, essentially was, was actively trying to find friends that were would enhance my life, add value, meaning people I could count on, people who could count on me. And, you know, those now that's been over 10, 12 years ago. Um, and the friends I have now are, you know, they're my family. Um, and, it's, and it's really shaped how I view myself, my self-worth, how I show up for, for them, how I show up for my family and my, you know, my spouse and my kids. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's been super, super important in my life to surround myself with with the right type of people.
0: Yeah. You know, thanks for sharing all that, Chris. Um, at times I think people hear this and they say, well, does this just mean like firing your friends when you get upset with them? Or does this mean like leaving people behind that are struggling? And it doesn't mean either of those things. I think what it means is trying to have friendships where your values are aligned Yep. and your values can be aligned and someone can be a real asshole or angry or hard to deal with because they're suffering physical illness or depression or they're in the process of getting divorced. But if your values are aligned, like you take that person's hand and you ride it out with them. Maybe you set some boundaries to protect yourself. If your values are not aligned, then to me, there's no covenant that says that you have to stay friends with someone. And I actually think that it's really important to consider friendships for different seasons of your life. um, There's the romantic story of, you know, your best friend from elementary school or middle school that's still your best friend when you're 50. And when that happens, that's great. But if it doesn't happen, it doesn't take away from the friendship that you did have when you were in elementary school or middle school. That was the best friend during that season of your life. Um, But those seasons change. So I think that there's a whole lot of judgment that can come with this. And I think just clarifying that it's not about dumping, you know, people that are giving you problems or that are like Debbie Downers. It's about clarifying what are your values and do the people around you share similar values?
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Once I decided I didn't want to be, you know, going to clubs and drinking and doing all this stuff and that was, wasn't really enhancing my life. It's like, what, what do you do? You have to make a decision. Um, and it helped, you know, kind of coinciding with a divorce. It kind of made it for like a clean slate type of situation on a lot of that. Um, How old were you when that happened? I was 34. Okay. 33. Yeah. 33, 34. Um, and yeah, I mean, the friends I have now, um, It's it's the kind of thing where it's like, it feels like, yeah, I'm going to know these people for the rest of my life. You know, they're going to be part of my life for the rest of my life. And I just, I feel super grateful for that, but I also cherish it and, and cultivate it just like you would any meaningful relationship and, you know, trying to make time and, and all on all these things. And it's hard.
0: Yeah, there's only so many hours in the day. Yeah,
1: it's for sure. It's for sure. Okay, so the next mindset shift is motivation follows action. Now I know this is something you talk a lot about. Um, I love this. It's so true. You don't have to feel good to get going. You have to get going and give yourself a chance of feeling good. Um, tell us, let's just unpack this one for, for our listeners and, and kind of where, where this one originated from.
0: So this, is, this originates from all different sources and angles, and they're all really valid. So the first time I heard something close to this was from our good friend of The Growth Equation and perennial great podcast host in his own right, Rich Roll. And Rich Roll says that mood follows action. And um, I think that that can be really accurate and true. And you could argue that motivation is a kind of mood or not. Mm -hmm. And that's just like, to me, about splitting hairs. Um, Rich got that, I believe, from his 12-step recovery from alcoholism. He heard that, if I'm remembering the story right, from his sobriety mentor. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, they often say, right thinking follows right action. Uh, Very similar, right? So like... Mm -hmm. What a psychologist might say is you can't control your thoughts, but you can control your actions, and certain actions cultivate different kinds of thoughts. In the research literature, this is called behavioral activation, and this is when we really narrow into motivation. And behavioral activation originated as a therapeutic tool to help people experiencing depression. Uh, one of the major symptoms of depression is just like complete and total apathy, a lack of motivation. and. One would think that, well, I need to somehow inspire myself or get my motivation up to then start going, to do what I want to do. And behavioral activation flips that on its head and in the late 70s started testing and saying, hey, what if we just had people start to do stuff even if they felt completely apathetic? Even if all that meant was like getting out of bed and brushing their teeth and you know doing one load of laundry. And what the researchers found is that actually the motivation followed the action. Um, so it is pretty paradoxical. Now, this isn't to say that when you're not feeling motivated, it's not hard to get going. It can be very hard and it can feel like you're really forcing yourself to do it. But just knowing that, hey, if I give myself a chance to feel better, I'll have a chance at feeling better. <laughs> and the best way to do that is by getting going, then like that 1% of you can help you get that umph. And, um, I'm a big fan of not looking to like minuscule cases and then generalizing to extremes, but rather looking to extremes and then generalizing to minuscule cases. So if this works for the treatment of clinical depression, then there's probably a pretty high degree of confidence that it works for just your day-to-day periods of apathy or ruts.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, There's so much of that happening. And I know you've done a lot of writing around sort of languishing, um, as, as a societal thing, post COVID. Um, let's say someone is feeling like, oh, they have no motivation. What would be sort of, what would be your game plan for them besides just, would it be like make a short checklist and try to do everything or, or or
0: what would that look like if someone was coming to you for advice? I think the first thing is like the mindset shift, right? Which is what the post was about and what we're talking about, which is like, okay, so what? Because even like the act of coming to me and being like, oh, I have, you know, I have no motivation, that frames it as problematic that you have no motivation. Um, But it doesn't have to be. It can just be like, all right, like I'm not motivated today. Oh, well, here are the things that I wanted to do or here are the things that I said I was going to do. So I'm going to go ahead and and do them. Um, So I really think like, It is really powerful just to release from the idea that motivation actually matters. Now, if you're completely apathetic and dull all the time and you never feel excited about anything, probably wise to seek help, to see a therapist. Like maybe you are in a depressive rut and you need more than just kind of nudging yourself into action. But I also think that especially for people that might have kids and a job and a partner and just like all kinds of stuff, you know, the days of springing out of bed at six in the morning to seize the day, like those might be on pause for a period of time. Maybe they're just over and that's okay. And, um, I think that that like giving your permission, giving yourself, excuse me, permission, not to need to feel so great um, I think that's like really the biggest shift here, because once you start to do something, you almost always feel better. Um, and I say almost always, cause like there are cases of pretty rough depression where like this falls short, um, and there's other tools in the toolkit, but shy of that, like getting going almost always makes you feel better. There's one other exception, which is like when you're genuinely just like tired, and need rest. And like, you are truly fatigued. You're not in a rut. It's not just that your motivation's stalling. It's that you are, you know, you've worked yourself into a place where you really need to take some time away. Um, Well, there, it makes sense to actually rest, to not get going.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, to channel Steve, since I'm I'm in his shoes, you know, if the running metaphor, uh, you know, most people don't regret the run afterwards. Right. they might exactly unless the door,
0: unless right. they're like crazily overtrained and then like you know they they I don't know what what you do in running you tear your proximal hamstring or something <laughs> but yeah but and that's when you actually need to rest
1: right exactly exactly but I think
0: there's a different texture to like real fatigue and lack of motivation yeah I think so too
1: I think so too yeah I mean I, I think and that one flows really well into sort of the next mindset shift which is really thinking about emotional flexibility. And sort of understanding, you know, at least understanding what how you're feeling and what's happening. And so you can so you can have a sense of like, all right, am I actually super tired today? Am I super happy to like what's going on? So I'd love for you to, to share with us sort of like why it's so important to have sort of a flexible mindset with, with your with your emotions.
0: Well, the sure answer is that when you judge an emotion, it becomes stickier and it becomes more indicative of how you view yourself in the world that day. Whereas if you can treat emotions more like a weather pattern that come and go, you can feel them, but you don't have to attach to them. And that act of non-attachment is really important because a lot of people, especially if you're a big feeler, feel all kinds of emotions just within the span of a given day. There can be happiness, sadness, excitement, fear, hope, despair, on and on and on. And trying not to feel repression is not good. Like, it just comes up to bite you in the ass almost every time. Feeling really deeply and attaching to those things, saying, oh, now I'm sad and, like, my day is ruined, my week is ruined, I'm sad— Or the opposite, I'm happy, everything is great. Like Then the minute that you need to do something that kind of doesn't foot with that emotion, you're not sure if you can or it throws you for a loop. Whereas if we can just let these emotions move through us and be flexible enough to try to make space to hold everything that comes up, we have the best chance of being grounded and centered throughout all kinds of different weather. And it's this beautiful middle ground of not repressing or suppressing emotions. So yes, like really feeling them, but not attaching or over identifying with them either. This yeah. is stuff that they teach my son in preschool. It's Daniel Tiger, which is a phenomenal show for kids. And I think that the, the preschool is more advanced than when we were in preschool, because I don't remember this, but, um, just this notion that like emotions in, in the feelings that they create are completely normal part of being a human and they're not bad. No emotion is bad. Some might be uncomfortable. Some might be more desirable, but we don't need to judge them. And when we don't judge them and we let them move through us, they hold a lot less power over us.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Daniel Tiger, big fan of Daniel Tiger in our house, can sing all the songs. Um, we were recently on vacation with, with, our, with my family and we were on this huge Ferris wheel. And my son, who's, who's almost four, he was scared. And we're all trying to reassure him, and it's like, hey, you know, two things can be true. You can have a couple emotions. You can be excited and scared, and you know, and it was it was uh, kind of trying to be, you know, again preaching the growth equation, you know, mindset of it's like, hey, this is a both and situation. You can be scared, and you're also going to be okay. And you know, after the ride, he wanted to go again, right? But there was this period where we're trying to help him work through his emotions, and we're just supporting him. It's okay to be scared. You're going to be okay. The three of us are here to support you and help you through this. And remember, Daniel Tiger, when he didn't want to go on the ride. So it's just, it's just funny how how this stuff really, really works.
0: Yeah, we do a lot of um, with my five and a half year old emotions and weather comparisons. So, like when he's clearly hot or dysregulated, it can be like, oh, like is that? Does that feel like thunder or lightning or like really hard rain or is that a tornado? And um, That just helps Theo like name what he's feeling and create a little bit of space. And then we can work with that. And we could say, oh, like the thunder is so loud, like, ah, thunder. Or like, oh, rain is like really, really sad. And then I can just remind him, but you know, like after the rain, like there's a rainbow or the sun will come out, or maybe it'll still be gray, but the rain will kind of subside. And then you wake up tomorrow and the weather's different. Yep. Um, So not minimizing what you're feeling, but realizing that. It will change, and the best way to have an emotion change is to not attach to it. And the best way to enjoy a positive emotion is to not attach with it. Because the minute you attach to a positive emotion, then you start worrying about when it's going to be gone. So like negative Mm -hmm. emotions we attach to, and we think they're going to be here forever, and we worry they're never going to go. Positive emotions we attach to, and then we start worrying they're going to be gone instead of just feeling them and realizing like it's going to be here for as long as it's going to be here.
1: I love it. I love it. Yeah. And if you're mad, everyone feel so mad that you want to roar, take a deep breath. Come on, Brad,
0: finish it off. Oh, it's been like two years. We got to revamp it for baby Lila.
1: (laughs) It's like, and count to four. Okay. No worries. I I put you on the spot there. So, so my bad. Um, (laughs) the next one, the next mindset shift. And I love this one because this is something I think about all the time. And I try to always be in this headspace, which is process over outcomes. Like you set your, you set your outcome goal, I mean, I do a lot of athletic feats of endurance. The outcome goal is there. You want to do well. You want to express your fitness. Go back and work on the process. So so why why, why is this mindset shift so important, Brad?
0: Well, this one is very complementary to the first thing that we discussed, which is uh, don't worry about being the best. Worry about being the best at getting better. Yep. So the outcome is being the best, winning the race, getting the book published, finishing the book getting promoted, uh, on and on and on, the process is the things that you actually have to do to give you the best chance at that. And um, the process is in your control, and the process is smaller than the outcome and therefore more manageable. And part of what makes big goals so scary is just how big they are and how far off they seem and how overwhelming they can be. But if you break that goal down into what do I have to do this year, what do I have to do this month, what do I have to do this week, What do I have to do this day? And then, how can I surround myself with the right people? How can I worry about consistency over intensity? How can I feel the emotions that come up and let them come and go? All that becomes the process. And when you situate yourself in the process, um, you have a lot more control and you don't get paralyzed by like this thing that could otherwise be massively overwhelming. Um, so that is why I think it's really important to focus on the process, not the outcome.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, if I can ask you a follow-up question on this, it's like, you know, process, I think there's, there's a couple different ways to describe that. It can be sort of the spirit that you bring to a thing. It can be your performance standards and training. It it can be a lot of, a lot of things. Um, and I'm curious if so you know, how, how, how do you, how do you first define, okay, well, what should my process be for this? And how can I stay sort of in this mindset of just working towards the goal, but kind of letting the goal be out there? Um, Yeah. I'm just curious, kind of your thoughts on on how, how can you like label these things so that they're most useful for, for, for you?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's going to be normal to think about a big goal that you want to achieve. You're, you're a human. So that's, that's totally normal. That's fine. Um, I think for me, it's like, have the goal, but then have the three things that work in service of it that I want to do this month and then have the three things that work in service of that, that I want to do this week. And then that leads me to think about, well, what do I have to do today? What do I want to do today? And, um, that allows you to kind of keep the goal in sight, but almost in like a blurry unfocused way where what you're really focused on are the couple steps ahead of you. Uh, the analogy everyone uses is a marathon. The finish line is like way up there. You can see it, but it's kind of blurry. So if you're focusing on this blurry thing that you're not even sure if it's really there, if it's farther away, um, that's not going to make for great precision in the moment. Whereas if you're focused on the next mile marker, getting to the next aid station that you can see around the road, well, that's where you are. And that's the best place to work.
1: Right. Right. For sure. For sure. Um, Okay. So, so the, the last one, which, which I love, and it's just such a, such a, a, it really ties it all together is you don't think yourself into the person you want to be, you act yourself into it. So it's more about less talking about the thing and more doing it, which again, really relates to some of the things we've already spoken about. But, but I just love this because it's like, you know, again, you can call it mood follows action. You can call it all kinds of things, but it's just such a powerful way to think about, how you can sort of be in charge of, of what, what you want to try to achieve.
0: For sure. When the Greeks talked about character, it always related to habit and that your character is a result of your habits and your habits are the things that you do regularly. Um, so we can think, or we often think that like our being is indicative of what we're going to do, but it's actually the things that we do shape our being. Um, And that is really important and powerful to, to realize that like, you can't, as you said, think or talk or dream your way into something, you've got to act your way into it. And um, this is just like the art of having skin in the game and really identifying like, this is the person I want to become, or this is the skill I want to develop. And I need to know enough to, to be able to go out and do it. But at a certain point, like, I just got to start doing the thing.
1: Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, I love it because it's, uh, I think it's, I don't know, I might be misquoting Tony Robbins, but he's like, Hey, if you want to change your life? Uh, your life is determined by your conditions. So if you want to change your life, you have to change your conditions. And that's something that you're totally, you know, it makes it much more manageable to think about it in terms of like, all right, well, how do I want to act? How how do I want to show up? How do I want to do this every day? Consistent, right? Like, how how do you want to deal with the people around you? How do you want to, you know, just basically show up every single day? I mean, it's it's such a great way to think about it. It's, it's like you, like you, you are in control of how you act. Right. And everything kind of can flow from that if, if you allow it to.
0: Exactly. And you can't control your thoughts and your feelings, but you can control how you respond to them and your actions. And, and that's really what it comes down to. Um, yeah, I think that also, especially with social media, like it's really easy to get sucked into discourse about the thing versus actually doing it and to trick yourself. And to think that the fact that you're reading social media posts about it or you're posting about it or you're making threads about it is the same thing as doing it. And I think it's really easy to tell when someone has skin in the game or when they don't. The area where I see this a lot and it irks me is the hustle of talking about not hustling. So there's a cadre of people that are like really against overwork and tell you that you shouldn't, you know, think about your job too much. You shouldn't identify with your job too much. Um, you should work less yet. These people put out like six newsletters a week are always online. So like, to me, that is an example where you're, you're talking about the thing. You're not being the thing. Yep. Um, and I think in this particular space, I'm gonna give her props. There's a one author and thinker named Jenny Odell who is just wonderful. And she wrote a great book that came out recently, but like no one knows that her book came out because she's in her garden gardening, because that's her thing. Like, <laughs> so you can be a genuine authentic person. I guess in that case it has a real cost. Um but I think that there's this like tendency to you know, write or think or talk all those things that we said about it instead of actually um, being it. And you should take your advice from people that have some skin in the game.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think another example of that is the actor Daniel Day-Lewis. Like, you don't hear from him. And he shows up as Abe Lincoln, wins an Oscar. You don't hear from him for a couple years, shows up, plays another amazing role. And it's just, you know, for him, it's about the craft. It's less about, like, the red carpet.
0: (laughs) Right, do the work. And in in our world of, of book writing, I think this is the difference between someone who does the work of researching and writing a book and then uses Instagram and Twitter and whatever else to take snippets from that and to play the attention economy game and to try to meet people where they are, which is exactly what I do versus someone that does the opposite, which is says, like, I just want to build a big platform on social media by asking AI what threads to write and by um, coming up with just, like, click ideas. And um, I think that, like, it is very clear kind of who's playing what game. And both games are fine. They're just different games. Right,
1: right. Yeah, I think, yeah, just, like, recognizing that it is a game is probably the first step for you to sort of kind of see where you are on it And, and or where, where you are in the game and kind of like, what mindset do you want to have? And do you want to shift it? Which is sort of the whole point of this thing is, is like, hey, if you want to change your life, you are in control of, of how you show up every day and what mindset you want to have towards every interaction, both like the ones that are, you know, super important and just the ones that might even be trivial.
0: That's right. And and it gets back to, I guess, what you said in the beginning about like how 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 this thread comes to be and how I use social media. The honest answer is I think like, all right, like it's Monday. I was going to post something on Monday. Um, I go to my notebook and I look at posts that have done well in the past because I do use it. Part of it's marketing. And I say, all right, like post on mindset shifts do well. Um, what are some mindset shifts? And I organize my notes based on topic that I've written about before. And then I kind of take those and I say, all right, how can I get them to fit? Like the challenge is how can I get them to fit on one little uh, social <laughs> media card? Yeah, a little tile. Um, yeah, a tile. That's the challenge. But the idea is easy because I could just flip to any page of the books that I've done and um, yep. and boom, like there's an idea. Um, so I think like the social media, even though that's where a lot of attention is and it matters, like that's the icing on the cake in terms of the work. The hard work was reading, you know, old books and primary studies and being in conversation with thinkers that are spend their lives on these topics and then making it your own in a book that then gets edited and published. And then like writing the tweet or the Instagram post is again, there's a challenge to it, which is getting the hook, right? Like a la, you know, these mindsets will change your life or whatever and in condensing it, but the ideas are there. Um, yeah. and I think that, I'm talking about what I do professionally, but I think that's for anyone. Like you can be a expert in real estate on the phone with your friends, or you can actually run a development company here, be a great realtor. Um, You can be an expert in finance because you read, you know, finance Twitter, or you can work as a financial advisor. And I think it's just important to spend most of your time doing the actual thing. I think Steve recently said, don't major in the minors. Yeah. So like, is the coach Dan John would say, keep the main thing, the main thing. Um, These are all ways of like acting yourself into who you want to be, not trying to content or think or believe yourself into who you want to be.
1: I love it. I love it. Well, Brad, this was super interesting. Thank you so much for sharing all your insights. Anything else you want to, you want to share with us, leave us with.
0: Yeah, thanks for being such a great co pilot, Chris. I guess there's one more thing, and that is I really view all of this as giving words and language and concepts for things that people might feel or intuit, or like maybe they already even know, but they just don't have the words for. And I mentioned this earlier in the podcast. I think it's so important. I really think like my primary job is a writer, whether it's in a book whether it's on Instagram, whether it's here talking about the things that I've written is again, to just name things that people sense or they feel, or like they can almost like grasp, but they can't yet grasp them because there aren't words and to put words on those things, because then you can have a conversation with it. You can measure it. You can test it. You can turn it into a tool that to me is like the real value of all of this and and, and of these mindsets some of them are going to work for some people at some times, others not. But once you have them, once they become more tangible, then you can, you can really use them. So I think that that's the most important thing. Like, are these all with a high degree of confidence directionally right? Yes. Does that mean that they're going to work all the time for everyone? No. But having them as a tool and having the words for them, that's the real power. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Chris, for joining today. Thank you, listeners. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. If you aren't yet subscribed, make sure to subscribe to the pod. That way you'll never miss an episode. And uh, with that, we'll catch you next Wednesday morning.